One of the things I love about being on retreat and being in retreat centers like Spirit Rock is that we enter what we call the timeless realm, where every day is pretty much the same. There's no weekends on retreat, right? It's just, even though there's variations here and there and different things happen, but this kind of um, universal nature of the practice and how it unfolds day after day, day after day. And something in that that allows us to open in a way we can't do if we're in that usual rushed, busy state that we are often at home. But from sitting here now, can you remember 10 days ago when we arrived here? I mean, it seems a lifetime ago almost, doesn't it? It seems so long ago, and we're all sitting here that first night, kind of looking around saying, how did we get here, and who's here, and how do we do this? And that's not just you, that's us as teachers, too. We're like, every time we come together, you know, every uh, retreat is a different um, manifestation. Every team has to come together, team of teachers, and and uh, connect with each other and figure things out. So there really is that sense of newness and exploration. But from this point, see, you can sort of see the, um, um, what's the word? The stretchy nature, I can't think of the word, stretchy nature of time. It's very, it's not fixed, right? It's very fluid. And it just happened that in a recent New Yorker I was reading, I, I read this poem and I, it kind of reminded me of this fluidity of time, how it's very subjective. It's not just as linear as a clock might tell you. It's by Brenda Shaughnessy. I have a time machine, but unfortunately it can only travel into the future at a rate of one second per second, (laughs) which seems slow to the physicists and to the grant committees and even to me, but I managed to get there time after time to the next moment and the next. The thing is, I can't turn it off. I keep zipping ahead. Well, not zipping. And if I try to get out of this time machine, open the latch, I'll fall into space unconscious, then desiccated. And I'm pretty sure I'm afraid of that, so I stay inside. There's a window, though. It shows the past. It's like a television or a fish tank, but it's never live. It's always over. The fish swim in backward circles. Sometimes it's like a rear-view mirror, another chance to see what I'm leaving behind. And sometimes like blackout, all that time wasted sleeping. Myself at age eight, whole head burnt with embarrassment at having lost a library book. Myself lurking in a candled corner, expecting to be found charming. Me holding a rose, though I want to put it down so I can smoke. Me exploding at my mother, who explodes at me because the explosion of some dark star all the way back struck hard at mother's mother's mother. I turn away from the window, anticipating a blow. I thought I'd find myself an old woman by now, traveling so light in time. But I haven't got far at all. Strange not to be able to pick up the pace as I'd like. The past is so horribly fast. The past is so horribly fast. Where did it go? When we were in the middle, didn't it seem endless? Didn't it? Like, when? And 
gold star if you weren't counting the days, but I'm sure most of you were. But we have that elasticity of time, I think that's what I was trying to say, where at times, at times, it seems very slow, and then from yesterday to today to tomorrow, it's like a flash, right? It's over so quickly. I'm saying this now just to help us appreciate the preciousness of this moment, because this is also a moment that's going by. Can we be here? Can we open up to that? And as I said, you know, as we came together, basically a group of strangers. Some of us knew each other, of course, but most didn't. And now it's palpable to feel this web of kindness and warmth that's arisen out of this group practice together. And by that, I don't mean to minimize any difficulty or challenge you may still be having. The purification doesn't stop just because the metta retreat is nearly over. You know, we still have many opportunities to learn, to grow, to open. But something has shifted in this room and how we feel ourselves in it because of this week of practice. And the main thing is, wherever you are, it's where you need to be. It couldn't be otherwise. You know, you had the retreat you needed to have because that's the one you had. And just to sit with that, to open to that, um, wherever you are, it's perfect just as it is. This is the equanimity. So tonight, as our last formal talk together, uh, evening talk, I want to weave together the themes of the retreat that we've been talking about and practicing with, and particularly the other Brahma-viharas, as, uh, as all of the Brahma-viharas are these wise responses to life, wise responses to any situation. And just another exploration of this map of the heart that we've been exploring over this week together. And as I said uh, earlier, for me, really, the theme of this retreat has been kindness. You've heard it echoed by all of us in our talks, hopefully in the interviews, and hopefully in your direct felt experience. So I wanted to tell one of my stories about uh, a time that kindness really helped me. And it has a touch of homelessness in it, though not quite as powerful as John's, but a little bit similar feeling. So I did my first retreat in India, I think it was 1981, I was about 25 years old, and I fell in love. I did my first retreat with S.N. Goenka. It was extremely painful, extremely hard, uh, but something touched me. And from that time, I did the retreats that I could. I did, uh, you know, two or three more retreats right in a row just to um, keep practicing and at one of those retreats, I met Christopher Titmus, who's an English man who would go to Bodhgaya every year and teach a retreat. Um, so did a retreat with him and was really touched by his teaching. And I heard that he had a retreat center in England that he started with Christina Feldman. So uh, I lived in Asia, India, Nepal, different places for about a year and a half. But when I left, I went to England. And I had been traveling just prior to that with a boyfriend and prided that with my sister, and they'd both gone ahead of me. But by the time I got to England, they'd already gone on to Europe. And I really didn't know anyone in England. But I traveled around a little bit, did some things. But one of the first things I did was write to this retreat center, it was called East Farmhouse, and say, I want to go on retreat. And this is in the days where you had to write a letter. 
you know, I didn't have email. I didn't, you know, I didn't even know a phone number. I couldn't look up a phone number back then. No internet. Before the internet. <laughs> anyway, wrote a letter and said, I'd like to come on retreat. Traveled around a bit. Pick up my mail at the Poste Restante. That's a post office for those of you who don't go to them very often, where they collect mail for people who are traveling. Uh, picked up this letter and it said, oh, great. There's a retreat starting this weekend. You can come. I was so happy to know that I was going to a Dhamma center and going to practice meditation. But it was a bit of an odyssey to get there. Again, I was, you know, in my mid-twenties, traveling with a backpack. I've been living in India, you know, doing that India traveler thing, the cheapest hotels and the third-class trains just to eke my money out. And England seemed very expensive to me, you know, to buy a train ticket and then a bus ticket. But anyway, I'd found out how to get there. I don't know how. And on a train and then a bus and then a little local bus that went along some country roads and then finally he pulled over and he said, this is your stop. And I looked out and there was nothing there. <laughs> like, where, where am I? He said, over there. And he sort of pointed in the distance. Luckily I had a backpack, so, you know, put on my backpack and started along this little trail, this little path, you know, over the stiles and the, through the hedgerows and everything. And a couple of miles away there was this little village, Wiley, which is where East Farmhouse was. And I had to ask, where is the center? And, you know, people at that point, meditation really still was quite strange. So, you know, but I guess they were used to it. This place had been there for a few years, founded on the edge of the village. And you know that relief when you find some place? I didn't have a GPS. I didn't have Google Maps. I didn't have anything. I was just wandering, trying to find this place. And I found it. It's like, ah, oh, you know, I made it. Just that feeling of, great, here I am. And I walk in, and there's a large courtyard in this beautiful old farmhouse, and there's a man work, working on a car right in the courtyard. And he looks up and looks at me, and he sort of, his face drops a little, and he says, you've come for the retreat, haven't you? I'm like, yes. He goes, you better go inside. I'm like, this is a bit of a strange place, or have they decided no Australians are allowed to come or something? I don't know, you know, you like not a really warm well. He wasn't unfriendly, but he definitely looked concerned. So I go inside and there's this hubbub in the kitchen where all these people are. And again, they all kind of, you know that thing where you walk into a room and everyone looks at you and they're like, did you write that letter and say you were coming to this retreat? I'm like, yes, yes. I said that, and we wrote back and said you could come, yes. I said that letter was a week old. The retreat started last Friday and it's ending today. Because, you know, again, days of the post office, I just picked it up and there was no, they didn't put a date on the letter. It just said this weekend. So they said, you know, the retreat's over. It's like, oh dear. And they said, not only is the retreat over, normally it's a retreat center and it runs all day, all every day. And there are managers here, but because of some staffing problems, everyone is leaving today. The managers are leaving and we're closing the whole place up until the new managers come in two weeks. So you have to leave. You have to go. You can't stay. I was devastated, you know, to have traveled all that way and spent all that money. And I didn't even really know where I was. I'd found that place, but I knew no one, nothing. I didn't know really where I was in England. It was in um, Wiley. It was in Wiltshire. Um, That's all I knew. I didn't know where that was. And it cost a lot of money to get there, and I didn't know where to go. I was heartbroken. But they were like, but that's what's happening, sorry. You know, they were very kind, but very matter-of-fact about it. 
have a cup of tea, sit down, you know, catch your breath, but we're all packing up and we'll be out of here in an hour or two. It, it was, you know, and all of those thoughts of why me, and it's always this way, and I'll never be long, and no one loves me, you know, I come all this way, you know, just sitting there forlorn, forlorn in the corner, having my cup of tea, trying to think, where will I go? You know, I, I really, you know, all the way back to London, that was a long, was a whole day's journey to me. Anyway, very forlorn. But finally, a couple of people came up to me and said, come back into the kitchen, we want to talk to you. And they said, you know, we've been thinking about your situation. We know, you know, you came for a retreat and there's no retreat and we, we told you you have to go. We've actually decided that we're all going to leave, but you can stay. You, we'll actually turn the whole place over to you for two weeks and you can take care of it until the new managers come. So it was one of those days of, yeah, oh, 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 oh. It's like, instead of being cast out into the cold, you know, I'd been living for a year and a half in Asia in these cheap flea-bitten hotels and, you know, the cheapest places I could find in dormitories. And it was like someone gave me the keys to the palace. It was this beautiful old farmhouse um, in the lovely gardens, rolling hills all around. It was like heaven. So again, you know, out of the kindness of those people, they were, they didn't know me from Adam. They just, you know, they literally handed me the keys to this beautiful place. So lovely, right? I was so happy. I could practice. I could go for walks. They had a pantry stocked with food. It was like heaven for me after a year and a half in Asia. But of course, the mind doesn't, is never happy with that, is it? So the longer I stay there, the more my machinations are, how can I stay longer? Surely they need another manager. Won't they see what a good job I've done taking care of the place? And when they come back, they'll just welcome me into the community. So that was then my next idea. When they all came back, I'm like, don't you really need? I won't take up any room. I'll be so quiet or I'll help or I'll do this. And they said, no, sorry. You know, two managers is all we need. So we have space for They're coming. So again, oh, have to leave, have to leave. But because they showed me that kindness, that was the most profound thing. That trust, that openness, that sort of sense of caring. And I made connections with those people um, who were running the retreat center and said, I really do want to do this. I want to come back. They said, yep, you know, we'll keep you in mind when we have an opening. And so I had, you know, I had to leave after that time and traveled around, met my boyfriend, my sister, did all kinds of things. But I got a letter finally that said, we need you. You know, if you want to come, come in two weeks and you can be the manager. I dropped everything. Whatever plans I had, I actually let some people down. I said, I'm not going there. I'm not doing this. I want to go back and be in a Dhamma center. Because it wasn't just the Dhamma, though. That was so powerful for me. It was how kind the people were and how I felt I could trust them. So I went back and managed that retreat center for a year, and it changed my life. Again, I got more connected to the community. I made friends there. I still have. I met my future husband in that place. We, you know, we got together sometime later. We actually ended up starting a meditation community in, Engl- in uh, southwest England together and, and lived there for two and a half years. So that seed of kindness of those people basically saying you can stay opened the whole door of my Dhamma life and practice and and future community. 
out of their kindness and trust. And as I say, the whole thing flowed out of that. But I could say a lot of what Temple said last night, that I'm basically a shy person, an introvert. My natural, especially for most of my life, response on you know, having to meet people was to hide. If I could avoid social interactions, I would. And again, to now be in this role of sitting in front of a hundred or more people, talking, to talk intimately with one or more people in groups and interviews. My family doesn't recognize me. I'm a, I'm a different person from who I was back then. But metta and this practice of acceptance played such a huge role in that, in my ability to trust myself, to care for myself, and to feel a sense of authenticity in this role. But also the kindness and the trust and support of the people in this community who saw something in me that I didn't see as they put me in different roles. I was the executive director here for a number of years and then moved into teaching. I'm like, me? Yes, you know, come. It was this sense of graciousness and openness. They saw something that I didn't see, but it allowed me to flourish and grow in in ways I never thought could be possible for me, out of kindness, out of caring, out of trust. But I think many of us who come to meditation could have similar stories, certainly about our personality types, right? Introverts, raise your hand. You know, we love meditation, right? Because we're in silence, we don't have to talk to people, we have time to process things. You know, we run this place, right? It's true. Um, We have our extroverts who we love and who light the place up with their energy and their buoyancy. But introverts go, introverts, you know. There's this great book many of you have probably seen called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking. This world can, right? You know, the power of stopping talking and just sensing within, finding that trust and confidence and care for ourselves, so powerful. I'm not saying extroverts can't do that and can benefit from this practice, but just to really honor how many of us have that sense of of shyness or sense of unworthiness, however it manifests, and that this practice, we learn to sit and be with every aspect of our being, no part left out, as we say, so healing, so transforming. And when it's combined with the metta and that conscious intention towards kindness and and caring, really powerful, really transforming. And what gets transformed often is this sense of caring for self. So many of us, I said the other night, uh, live with a sense of not okayness and to really start to transform that and bring more love and self-care in, really boundless. So here we are at this part of this retreat. I know many of you are continuing on, but we always tend to, that judging mind comes up and we want to evaluate, you know, did I have the retreat I wanted to have or should have had? What do I tell my friends about it? You know, did I write an article about it? Did I get the experience I should have had, wanted to have? Please don't. 
you know, it's just suffering, right? Because as we keep saying, there's no right here. There's no right way to do this. No one's done it better than you. There's no experience to have. And even you can't evaluate while you're still here. We don't know what this practice has done for us. We can't tell from being so in it as we are here. And this really came home to me. I mean, I know it so well, but someone on a a metta retreat just a few years ago wrote me this letter after the retreat. Dear Sally, you interviewed me at noon on the next to last day of the recent metta retreat. It had had no impact on me up to that point, so far as I could tell, and I was disappointed. That puts it nicely. Disgruntled is perhaps a more complete description. Sound a little familiar? But not long after I left the interview room, I noticed that my attitude towards my fellow retreatants had changed. Until that moment, I had turned a critical opinion, I had formed a critical opinion of each person my eyes fell on. But now my attitude was different. I wished each of them well. When my eyes fell on someone, I would send that person my good wishes, not to say my love. In short, the transformation I had hoped for, but knew I could not elicit or count on, had taken place. This mood or feeling continued for several days after the retreat. I continued to say metaphrases silently to myself as I go through my day, and I continue to feel more kindly towards others than I did before the retreat, even if I am no longer as blissed out as I was during the last 24 hours of the retreat. So we never know. We can't tell. In a moment, the heart can open and change. So we've been exploring, as I said, this terrain of the heart, these Brahma-viharas, divine abidings, these expressions of the most sublime uh, qualities of the human heart that we can cultivate here on this plane. The reason we take metta as the foundation practice is because it so easily moves into the other three. That metta naturally uh, is this kindness and this warmth when it's open and caring and there's noticing goodness, inclining towards goodness, appreciation, feeling of metta, of kindness. When that warm, caring heart touches someone's suffering, it naturally opens with compassion. When it touches someone's joy, it responds with an equal joy, this empathetic or sympathetic joy. And equanimity has to be there to keep us grounded, balanced. And all of the Brahma-viharas are just permutations of each other, slightly different flavors of the same capacity to be connected, to be caring, to be in touch, to steadily open moment after moment to experience. But it does help to cultivate each one individually. There's a power and nuance to each one. And so we do that on a retreat like this. So the practice of compassion we've done. And as we probably said, compassion, the quivering or the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. And we see, you know, certainly through practice, but if we keep our eyes open, every life is touched by suffering. Our own suffering, as we have relationships, family, friends, we're touched by their suffering. We read the newspaper, so much 
suffering. But we've also known compassion, too. We've all been touched by compassion. Suffering doesn't mean something's bad or wrong. Suffering is the nature of this world, of being alive. But we actually have more capacity to be of service, to aid another, to support each other, when our hearts are clear and balanced. They can be responsive, respond with compassion, but this balance of equanimity is what really helps us. So as we practice in a formal way, this practice we keep saying, this is the parking lot. You get to drive the car around before you go out, you know, on the rush, rush, rush of the freeway or the busyness of the city streets. So we practice here and see the movement of the heart as it moves into compassion, perhaps closes down or drops into grief. We can work with that, open to that, see that. Really important to remember that compassion itself isn't a suffering state. It's this beautiful quality of the heart that opens to suffering, but it itself does not suffer. One of my teachers, Sonny Rinpoche, came to our house here in Woodacre and has a beautiful view of the valley and, and we see the sunset at night and the sun was just setting. He said, that's compassion practice. He said, sit and be with the sunset, that beautiful, the beauty of the sunset, but the sadness at the leaving of the daylight, the, the, the passing of the day, that bitter sweetness. He said, come and sit here and practice compassion. Open to the beauty, feel the ephemeral nature, the, the impermanent nature. And so it's this natural response. When the heart is connected and open, sees suffering, responds with compassion. But we have to stay open. We have to be willing to feel the suffering. Suffering is the doorway, the proximate cause for compassion. And we have so uh, much, so many strategies and belief that we shouldn't suffer. Or as Temple was answering the questions, our child shouldn't suffer. How do we, can we prevent suffering in others? No. And it's not even that we should. It doesn't help. I really like Eckhart Tolle's teaching on this um, from the New Earth. He said, One of the ego's many erroneous assumptions, one of its many deluded thoughts is, I should not have to suffer. Sometimes the thought gets transferred to someone close to you, my child should not have to suffer. That thought itself lies at the root of suffering. Suffering has a noble purpose the evolution of consciousness and the burning up of the ego. As long as you resist suffering, it is a slow process because the resistance creates more ego to burn up. When you accept suffering, however, there is acceleration of that process which is brought about by the fact that you suffer consciously. You can accept suffering for yourself or you can accept it for someone else such as your child or your parent. In the midst of conscious suffering, there is already the transmutation. The fire of suffering becomes the light of consciousness. So this is what we do in our practice, especially of compassion. We open to, we even move towards the suffering. We can so often feel that we'll be overwhelmed. We can't take it, that's too much. We need to shut it down, push it away. We think we can't bear it. 
we can actually bear much more than we give ourselves credit for. Our hearts can open in enormous ways, and they do. So this, this, this is just a self-limiting view that we can't bear it or we can't open. This is what we do the practice for, to actually just check those boundaries, those barriers that we place on ourselves. Because it's the empathy, that feeling with, that allows us to move out of, enables compassion and move out of a sense of self-centeredness and that I can't do this. In true compassion, there's no I and you and me helping others. There's just this sense of connection. As Pema Chodron says, true compassion does not come from wanting to help out those less fortunate than ourselves, but from realizing our kinship with all beings. That's the feeling with, that non-separation. And that kinship, that feeling of kinship, is the source of so much goodness in the world. And we can forget that. There is so much that's bad and wrong in the world, the, the, the terrible injustices, the cruelty, the prejudice, the racism, uh, the violence, the disasters that happen. I mean, endless, right? But there is so much good. There's this uh, other great book by Stuart Brand who wrote the Whole Earth Catalog called Blessed Unrest. And what he does is document the millions millions of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, basically non-profits around the world that are helping. Helping people, helping causes, uh, social justice, the environment, um, animals, whatever it is. Millions and millions of organizations in those countless millions of people trying, wanting to help, being kind, taking care. So this movement of the heart is a natural response. It's not something we have to do. You know, the internet, which can be a source of, you know, so much not so helpful stuff, also, of course, has lots of these really heartwarming videos. There's been a, a few recently I've seen, I'm an animal lover, of people helping ducklings that have, got, that have fallen down grates. It, I've seen quite a few of them. It must be a, a common thing that they do. But it's springtime, right? And the mother duck will always have her ducklings inland somewhere, and then she has to walk them to the water. And so as they cross roads, these little balls of fluff and the grates are big enough, they fall down. She doesn't. And so I just saw one, I think it was in East Europe, Eastern Europe somewhere, these big firemen had been called to help. Great. And so they'd taken off the grate and reaching down these little bundles of fluff. And the mother duck, she'd found a little bush nearby, but she's like, you know. She had a few ducklings with her, but she wouldn't leave. She must have been so afraid. It was a busy road, these big men helping her. You know, they, well, she didn't know they were helping. They were with her ducklings. And I just thought of, you know, the metasutta, just as a mother would protect with her life. And the, you could see she's walking up and down, and, ah, and one by one, these little balls of fluff. Some had gone along the drain and to the other side of the busy freeway, and they'd taken off that grate and pulled them out from there. And then the final scene, somehow they got them all in a box and took them all to the river or the lake and let them out. Just this movement of caring, of taking care. Here on retreat, the February retreat that I teach pretty much every year, this amazing story happened. Uh, there was a yogi who had a, a yogi job every night cleaning in the kitchen. Some of you might have that job. 
And she noticed that late at night, when there was nothing else happening in the kitchen, no one else much around, this other yogi would come in and had gotten permission to do this, would blend up this concoction in one of the mixers there, some health kind of drink. And so she started noticing, was doing that, paying attention. Noticed he didn't look that good. And, you know, so was compassionate, caring, in silence. At the end of the retreat, had the opportunity to speak to him and found out that his kidneys were failing because of a disease that he had. She offered him her kidney. So out of this retreat, out of that, caring strangers, they didn't know each other, and enabled this other yogi, this other student, a much longer life. The heart opens in the practice. And I've noticed here, I mean, because I, I, I often, you know, have things to go to you guys, you're wandering around, you can tell me whether this is the case. You know, our little fawns are being born, right? There's often a, a pair of twins with a mother. I have one, I live in Woodacre, there's a couple right near my house, I see them regularly, they're very fearful. But here I've seen a pair of twin fawns, but there, I haven't seen a mother, they're with some young bucks. Is that what I'm seeing? Normally, because I looked this up, that's not right, is it? Normally, you know, the young bucks, when the next young are born, they get pushed out of the little family circle, and they don't have anything to do with the babies. But I'm wondering, something maybe happened to the mother, and these young bucks are caring for these young baby deer, fawns. Now, I know the animals here aren't as afraid of us as right over the road in Woodacre, because I live there. They look at us and, you know, they're a little wary, but they're not afraid. I didn't know they'd also grown more compassionate. I think that's actually somewhat unusual that young bucks would have these babies with them. Again, I I don't know what's happening there, but it just opened. It's like, oh. These young guys, you know, they're like teenagers, you know, and they're like, oh, come, you know, it's beautiful. (laughs) Taking on the kids, you know. But just to feel, when the mind and heart are naturally, when when the heart, when the mind quietens, the heart naturally opens. Even in mindfulness, the very flavor of mindfulness, when we're really being mindful, not talking about practicing compassionate metta, just mindfulness. Its flavor is kindness, right? Its flavor as it touches the body, the mind, the heart, has this acceptance, this non-judging quality, this tenderness. Temple spoke about intimacy. It's the very flavor of the awareness is kindness, is compassion. When that receptivity touches suffering, it opens to compassion. Yes, we can practice it, but it happens naturally. This is the quality or the tendency of the heart. Naturally responds. Stephen Levine says, when your fear touches someone's pain, it becomes pity. When your love touches someone's pain, it becomes compassion. Pity, you know, is a gesture of caring, but it holds at arm's length. Compassion feels with. It's beautiful opening of the heart. The next of the Brahma-viharas that we practice was mudita, which is traditionally sympathetic or empathetic joy, joy in the happiness of others. Um, And it's actually considered, 
in some ways to be the most difficult because of the tendency of the heart to narrow and to see happiness as the pie, only so many slices to go around. If someone has a bigger one, it means I get a smaller one. It's not that way, and hopefully you had a taste of that. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if you truly practice mudita, your chances for happiness go up seven billion to one. Because, you know, you find someone else is happy and it makes you happy. So, really, it's a, a beautiful practice. But the practice of mudita for self, gratitude, that John spoke about so beautifully the other night, is so important too. Our own joy, our own happiness, you know, is the heart of the metta practice that we've been doing here. And it's the heart of the teachings, the end of suffering, the suffering that the Buddha spoke about so much, the end of it is happiness, deep happiness, true happiness, sublime happiness. So we start to look as we practice in this way, what does make us happy? What is happiness? What are we talking about here? What causes suffering? How much do we cause our own suffering? What blocks our capacity for joy and aliveness? in any moment, not in some big abstract way, but here now, on this retreat, as we go home in our lives. This is a practice that we can open to with curiosity, with, with um, interest. And you can hear teachings, or perhaps you've taken up the view that Buddhism is all about suffering. You know, what does the Buddha teach? Suffering. You know, what's the Four Noble Truths? Suffering. What does it say? Life is suffering. Sort of. The Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. He was called the happy one. People commented on his um, community of monks and nuns and says, why do they look so radiant? Why are they all smiling? Why are they all so happy? This is a practice of happiness, even as we're willing to be with suffering, to face suffering. And we can sometimes feel, you know, if we're not suffering, we're not serious enough, we're not doing the real practice that suffering is where it's at and that's what life is about and we need to, you know. No, you know. Look at all the teachings that point to, to joy, to happiness. The seven factors of awakening, the factor of pity or joy. It's a jhanic factor that I spoke about last the other night. Um, the other jhanic factor of sukha or happiness. So many lists that as part of their pivotal stage, have joy, contentment, happiness, confidence, uh, gladness uh, as part of it. Analeo, uh, Bhikkhu Analeo, great teacher and scholar, says the whole of the Buddhist path could be seen as a progressive refinement of joy. Right? I love this um, reframing of the Four Noble Truths, which, as I think we've said, First noble truth, there is suffering. Not life is suffering, but there is suffering. Cause of suffering, end of suffering. Path to the end of suffering. I like to reframe it. There is happiness. There's a cause for happiness, which is letting go. Having a free and clear heart and mind. It's possible to abide in happiness. We can know happiness. And there's a path to cultivate happiness. Same path, eightfold path, but it cultivates happiness. So what is happiness? We keep using this word, and it can seem a little trite, kind of like kindness. Oh, you know, happy, happy, happy I got a a new car or computer or the latest Apple gadget or whatever it is, that kind of happiness. 
The Pali, uh, tr- there's many flavors of happiness, but one of them is sukha, this quality that I spoke about the other night, uh, often translated happy contentment of mind and body, sweetness. It's a sublime feeling. And the Dalai Lama, again, he was, he's been a theme for us, he has a whole book called The Art of Happiness. It's a great book, highly recommend it. He's like a one-man publishing industry. If we just had his books, you'd have a whole library. Um, he talks about happiness as our birthright. The, the, the purpose of a human being is to be happy and how it's central to a sense of well-being and the necessity of working with the obstacles to happiness, our own minds and the thoughts and mind states that prevent us from being happy. And so a whole book on a lot of practical advice. And he wrote, this book was written actually by a psychotherapist out of interviews he had with the Dalai Lama. And the psychotherapist talked about his own training where he said, all my training was to reduce neuroses. That was considered, you know, the goal. And to make people normal, which meant a little less neurotic. There was no talk about happiness or this you know, great sense of well-being. And he was so enlivened by the Dalai Lama's teachings. Of course, now there's a whole positive psychology movement and a lot of therapies knowing the importance of this sense of well-being and happiness. But it is essential for us. It's not just, you know, oh, that would be nice, or I'm more serious, or I'm about something else. Happiness. But you need to know what it is. What is it I'm talking about? What are you meaning if this is something that you uh, care about? I really like this book, uh, The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People, How We Choose to Be Happy uh, by Rick Foster and Greg uh, Greg Hicks. actually live in the East Bay and they've come here to Spirit Rock and uh, done workshops. James Barras friend and colleague um, has worked with them, done workshops and retreats, because they really talk about intention and how out of making wise choices and really engaging with life, we can shift the direction of that barometer of happiness. And they have a great definition of happiness that I like. Our definition of happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability and centeredness, It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. Sound a little familiar? I mean, we've been talking about a deep sense of engagement living in the moment, confidence, trusting yourself, meeting experience, the good and the bad that will come. This is what we're talking about when we talk about happiness. And happiness is in at the moment. I don't know if you know this, but all you have to do is Google Amazon.com, happiness, thousands of books, happiness in this and that, you know, that. Uh, and it's great because I think we've, we lost track of that for a while in the busyness of, of life. Um, and, and it's out of a sense of discontent. You know, we live in such an affluent society for so many people, and yet there's still a sense of discontent, of not enoughness, of not okayness. 
And there's studies, you know, that the year after people have good fortune, and this is the limitations of these studies, their definition of good fortune is winning the lottery. I wouldn't consider that necessarily good fortune, but many people do. Or bad fortune, getting seriously ill or breaking a leg or something like that. That six months after those big events, people find themselves back pretty much where they were. There's a happiness quotient, and it doesn't move that much unless we change something in how we're relating to our experience. And this practice shows us that we can actually change. We can do more about that than we think. Again, James Barras, uh, he's our happiness teacher. Mr. Joy, we call him. And he is a genuinely happy person. And he's written a book called Awakening Joy, and he does this great class in person live in Berkeley, uh, meets monthly and often has 100, 200 people twice a month. Uh, does it twi- you know, two, uh, two at a time, um, joining, and up two or 3,000 people online, practicing happiness, practicing joy, practicing inclining the mind and heart. And it works, just like it does here. Here's a quote from someone in that course. This course changed my life. I understand now that I have a lot more to do with experiencing joy than I thought. To be joyful had always seemed like luck, or some sort of accident even, and I felt like I was a victim of life circumstances. I now see that I have more control over how often I experience joy. I can choose to be happy and choose to be unhappy, even miserable. Joy seems to occur more often as a result of this realization. This is what happens when we train the mind and heart in this wholesome, beneficial way towards qualities that actually bring this sense of peace and ease, joy and happiness. It's possible. It's doable. The last of the Brahma-viharas, equanimity, that we practiced just the other day, last Brahma-vihara, last for a reason, perhaps the most powerful, can be the most challenging, But this quality is often the one that draws us to meditation, right? We we have a sense of how chaotic our minds are, how stressful our lives are, and there's this archetype, you know, of the cooled-out meditator, unruffled by anything, you know, just sitting on top of the mountain. I don't know, you know, we might not have that sort of concretely in the mind, but there's something in that archetype, right, of the... the, um, possibility of peace and calm that meditation can bring. And it's true, it is possible, but there's often a misperception of what that, what that, what that is actually pointing to. Um, is, uh, one of the ways we can tell meditation is becoming more mainstream is there are more cartoons about meditation, so I like to collect them. And one of the classics is they're often set either on mountaintops, it's a guru, guru subset, subgenre, or the zendo, where, which is sort of very austere and gloomy and dark with robed figures. And there was a little kind of mysterious. And in this one, there's two robed figures. And one is leaning towards the other. You can tell they've just asked a question, young one of the older one. Older one is replying, nothing happens next. This is it. <laughs> you might have had that feeling sometime this week. But that sense of, you know, the simplicity, the quiet, the calm, 
again, especially us introverts, really, doesn't it draw us into meditation? There's this beautiful quote by Nyosho Kempo, Tibetan master, that just I've always liked. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. So that's us, right? The helpless mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. But rest in natural great peace. Just pointing to that possibility, even within this mind, even within this samsaric round, equanimity. So equanimity is this balance in the mind, but it's not static and it's certainly not unfeeling. It's not a state we achieve. It really is, you know, those images of the tightrope walker. They don't get across that chasm by holding rigidly and staying in one place. It's that movement, that aliveness. That's what equanimity is. It meets the moment. Equanimity has to connect or else it wouldn't be equanimity. If it's distant and removed, that's not equanimity, that's detachment. It has to be connected. It's alive and responsive. And for all of us, we reach that edge where we say, I can't bear this. I can't open to this. And then we find we can. The people we might look at and say, oh, how do they do that? I couldn't bear that. They didn't know either. They didn't know how to bear it. They found they could by meeting it, by showing up. So it doesn't mean not feeling, but actually becoming more in touch, more open, but trusting that we can find balance, trusting that we can find um, some sense of openness and steadiness in all these ups and downs. So it acknowledges the truth of things, how things actually are. The classic phrase, and I'm sure you got introduced to us, can seem really challenging. All beings are the owners of their karma or their actions. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. And we say that after a week of wishing, right? What do you mean, doesn't depend upon my actions? I've just spent a week wishing well, and now you're telling me doesn't depend on that? Well, it doesn't. Because as we keep saying, it's the transformation of our hearts and minds. Then that has an effect, no doubt. But we're not practicing to control someone else's well-being. Not practicing to make something happen for someone else. So we can see how we can wish sincerely, sincerely, that someone not suffer. That someone be happy. But we can't control that, right? We can't. It's impossible as a parent to a child, as a lover to a loved one, as a, as a sibling, as a friend. We can't control it. That is the way things are. But the fact that difficult things happen doesn't mean that someone has done something wrong in the sense of they're to blame or it's their fault that this bad thing is happening. This is not the teaching of karma. I like Gil Fronsdale's uh, teaching on our karma. We're not to blame, but we're responsible. And it's kind of like not to have this sense of judgment or, or um, guilt around it, but as we meet every new moment, this is where this question about free will or determination, determinism comes in. If we meet the moment with mindfulness, I sincerely believe we do have a choice. 
we can respond more wisely. And with clear intention, wise intention, we can shift that karmic stream. This is what we've been doing these whole 10 days together, is shifting our karmic stream to incline to more happiness and more ease and well-being. We're not completely in control. Of course not. There are so many causes and conditions. But can we be instrumental in steering this ship? Yes. If we're conscious, if we're mindful, if we're in touch. So this possibility of training the mind and heart to be more present, more kind, more compassionate, it's doable. It's what we've been doing here and what we continue to do here. So coming to the end, I want to tell one more Dalai Lama story. So he came here. He taught here in this hall. It was mainly to a group of international um, meditation teachers. There was, I forget, 100 or 200 of us sitting here. And he was sitting here. It was amazing to be with him in a relatively small group um, and hear his teachings for two or three hours. And for me personally, the, one of the huge benefits was Spirit Rock at that time needed a nice chair for him to sit in. So they borrowed an armchair from our house. So I have an armchair the Dalai Lama sat in. And I know Sylvia has one too, because after he sat here and taught for three hours, Upstairs was all the staff and the board of Spirit Rock and the really sort of close community. So he went straight up there and sat in that chair and taught up there. So he was here for three or four hours. People, you know, everyone, oh, the Dalai Lama, they wanted him. He went straight up there. He taught beautifully, great humor. He came downstairs. And what we hear later is he really needed to go to the bathroom. But he had the secret service. He's a head of state. And there was a bathroom right there, as you know. And they said, you can't go in there. We haven't had the bomb-sniffing dogs go in there. So it's not safe, the Spirit Rock bathroom. But anyway, so the Dalai was like, oh, no, I'm going to go to the bathroom. He walks out, and what's down this driveway, this, this walkway you go up between here and the council house, is a hundred other people, all standing in line with their katas, wanting to shake his hand and bow. So here's this poor man. He's taught for three hours here, another out there. He wants to go to the bathroom. And there's a hundred people wanting to shake his hand. He shook everyone's hand. And then he ran to the nearest <laughs> bathroom. But the poor, he's so sweet, so kind that he would do that. Just yeah. And we will know, my husband and I, true equanimity when we recover that chair, because it's falling apart. We have to put a cover on, you know, a, a little a Tibetan rug on it because it's falling apart, but it's a Dalai Lama chair. <laughs> so, so here we've been. For, I, have, I have another Dalai Lama story, but I don't have time to tell it. Maybe I'll tell it tomorrow. So this, this time together, exploring this terrain of the heart, it's like giving you this beautiful map of the heart. Wherever you go, it's all good. There's no wrong here. There's just exploring and expanding the capacity of the heart to feel, to be present, to be kind. Actually, Caleb stopped me on the path as I was coming up and told me this great thing. I said, I'll share that tonight. He said, if you, uh, see if I can get it right. If you're kind to a person, they know kindness for a day. If you teach someone to be kind, they know kindness for a lifetime. So, beautiful, thank you. That's what we've been doing here, learning to be kind, 
And hopefully this kindness will support you when you leave the retreat, as you go out into the world. As I've said before, it brings with us all these beautiful qualities of the heart and enables us to meet each moment with kindness. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows doesn't mean that things just go well, but it means we're willing to be open, present, and kind. And as Temple finished with last night, I loved how he said it, that freedom, kindness, happiness, all of these qualities are more accessible, more available than you might think. Not some distant goal, you know, some maybe sometime in the future. But if we met each moment with kindness, that's a definition of freedom to me because it brings so many beautiful qualities with it of connectedness, of presence, of of, uh, generosity, of renunciation. It's right here and right now. So let's, I'll just finish with another poem, one many of you know, that just speaks to this, the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, welcoming them all. Rumi, the guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, Still treat each guest honorably. He may be cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from the beyond. So let's just sit and let the words settle into silence. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. About half an hour for walking in the cool night air. Please come back and we'll chant the Metta Sutta, the words of loving kindness together at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.